0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 320. It's titled, Someone Won the Election, Now What? Four years ago, at the time of the last U.S. presidential election in 2016, I recorded a two-part episode, one on Tuesday, Election Day, and the next part the following day, once the results were known. It was episode 137, titled, Trump Wins, Now What? I will not be doing a two-part episode. This presidential election today is Election Day, November 3rd, 2020. It has been a combative election season with many, many early voters. As of last Friday, 94 million Americans had voted in the election, double the 47 million that did so in 2016. There's record turnout, but the results might not be known for days or weeks because a lot of those early votes have to be counted. In 2016, when Trump won, it was a surprise because the various election models, such as Nate Silver's 538, had Trump at only a 20% probability of winning. These models are based on numerous polls. All polls ask questions and then weight or adjust the results based on the estimates of likely voters. In 2016, pollsters systematically underestimated the number of white males without a college degree that would vote. Many more voted, and that was enough to push the Electoral College victory to President Trump. Pollsters believe they have adjusted for that underestimation this round. There also appears to be a lot less undecided voters in the days and weeks leading up to the election. Does that mean the election models will be more accurate? We'll see. 538's model, which simulates the election results 40,000 times, they see Biden winning 89 times out of 100, and Trump 10 out of 100, and a tie 1 out of 100. The Economist also has an election model. It includes poll data, but also current economic data. They see Biden's chances of winning the Electoral College at 97%, better than 19 and 20. Still, surprises happen, and it could happen again. In the fall of 1992, I was getting an MBA at Miami University. I was taking a finance class taught by an excellent professor, David Leonard, and I just realized this today in looking at his bio that one of his research specialties was closed-end funds. 1992 was an election year. The race was between the incumbent, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. Leonard said repeatedly that semester that in presidential elections, people vote with their pocketbooks. In other words, the economy and how people feel about their financial prospects are the primary drivers of election outcomes. In November 1992, the U.S. unemployment rate was 7.4 percent. That was up from 5.3 percent in 1990. The unemployment rate peaked at 7.7 percent in July 1992. The U.S. was coming out of a recession. Unemployment was high. Leonard insisted that Clinton was going to win based on people's pocketbooks. I recall that he wasn't very happy about that prospect, but he was also right. Now, four years is a long time. A lot can happen. Think about what has happened in your life since the 2016 election. I recorded 183 regular podcast episodes and 183 Money for the Rest of Us Plus episodes. LaPrelle and I have bought four houses and sold four houses in the last four years. We have moved four times. We became empty nesters. Most of the time, when the pandemic hit, our kids came back. Each of our mothers passed away. Our dog died. I wrote and published a book. We traveled to Norway and Sweden. I went to Japan twice, to Mexico three times. We traveled all over the U.S. holding meetups for PLUS members. And now, we haven't been in an airport or on a plane since March due to the pandemic. Over the past four years, we have released a number of episodes that discussed economic policies and actions by the Trump administration. Did those policies work? Did they help U.S. citizens to become better off economically? Are they better off than they were four years ago before the pandemic hit? I think we can be quite assured that many, many people are worse off now than in 2016, because of the economic devastation from the COVID-19 pandemic. But prior to that, year-end 2019, were things better than they were prior to Trump's election? In 2017, the first year of the Trump administration, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 was passed. This was a big tax reform. The objective was to simplify the tax code and to lower taxes on corporations and most individuals. We discussed taxes and this particular act in episode 186 of the podcast, Why Do We Pay Taxes? In that episode, I mentioned my 2016 tax return was 38 pages long and included 14 different schedules in forms. I contrasted that with my friend Stig of the Investors Podcast. He's from Denmark he can prepare and file his Danish taxes in 10 minutes. 2018 was the first year that I filed taxes under the new tax code. It didn't simplify my taxes. My federal tax return that year was 43 pages long and contained 23 separate schedules and forms. The good news is for most people, that tax reform did simplify their taxes. If we look at the number of individuals that itemized their taxes, which means they had to provide more documentation, versus those that just took the standard deduction, there were a lot less people itemizing in 2019, even for those earning more. For example, those that earned between $75,000 and $100,000, 52% itemized their deductions in 2017, only 16% in 2019. And those that earned between $250,000 and $1 million, 95% itemized deductions, had more complicated tax returns, versus only 52% in 2019. The Tax Policy Center and the Joint Committee on Taxation expected that tax cut to increase economic output. Lower taxes meant more income for individuals, that they could buy things that would encourage companies to produce more. Lower taxes for corporations was supposed to encourage investing in capital projects, which would also create jobs, more income, and it would allow the economy to grow. Potentially, there would be more workers, as some workers would have a greater incentive to get back to work because of lower taxes, and employers would be hiring more workers because of these capital projects. What has been the result? The Tax Policy Center estimated GDP would grow about 0.8% faster in 2018. And it appears that economic output was faster. U.S. GDP grew at 2.9% in 2018, up from 2.2% in 2017. But it wasn't significantly faster because U.S. economy grew 2.9% in 2015. In 2019, GDP slowed to 2.3%. And this year, U.S. GDP looks like it will fall on an annual basis by about. 4%. Taxes collected, total revenue is down. we look at data from the Congressional Budget Office, total revenues as a percent of GDP was forecasted to be 18.1% prior to the passing of the Tax Cut and Job Act. The actual revenue as a percent of GDP in 2018 was 16.4%. Income taxes went from the projections of 8.9% Of GDP down to 8.3%, corporate taxes from 1.7% of GDP down to 1%. The corporate tax rate went from 35% down to 21%. And businesses also were given a tax holiday to bring home overseas earnings and pay a repatriation tax of 15%. That was potentially $2.6 trillion coming back into the US that could have been invested in different projects. What was the result? What did businesses do? I found one study that was published in the University of Chicago Law Review by Nicholas Cohen and Minaj Viswanathan, and they just looked at the top 100 S and P 500 companies, excluded financial companies, and then looked at the taxes paid, the tax rates, and 12 dependent variables. They wanted to see if this tax cut had an impact on the number of employees. Companies had? Did they hire more? Did they pay a higher dividend? Did they pay higher capital expenditures, generate more cash flow from operations? Did they do more research and development? Were their overall earnings before taxes greater? Was executive compensation and CEO compensation higher? And did they repurchase more of their stock? They found in looking at this change in taxes that it had no impact on pretty much all of those variables. Companies didn't hire more workers because of the tax cut. They did not invest more money in capital projects because of the tax cut. They did pay their CEOs slightly higher and they repurchased more shares. Now, the authors point out that might not be a causal relationship. Might it just have been that way. But in 2017, U.S. companies purchased $341 billion dollars of their stock shares. That's for the year ending 2017. For the year ending March 2019, they repurchased $620 billion. They bought back a lot more stock. With lower tax revenues as a percent of GDP, the U.S. budget deficit increased. The U.S. government budget deficit to GDP was 2.4% in 2015. It was 3.4% in 2017, And for fiscal year ending September 30th, 2019, the U.S. budget deficit to GDP was 4.6%. It grew. The deficit was $1 trillion for the year ending September 30th, 2019. For the year ending September 30th, 2020, the U.S. budget deficit increased to $3.1 trillion, 15.1% of GDP. That's what happens during recessions the budget deficit balloons. What is supposed to happen during the expansion is the budget deficit shrinks. Unless you cut taxes significantly, then the budget deficit widens. Total public debt to GDP was 102.8% year-end 2017. Because of these tax cuts, total public debt to GDP was 106.7% at the end of 2019. And now, as of Q2 2020, it's 135.6%. We've done a number of episodes on Do Budget Deficits Matter? We're going to test that as a nation. Budget deficits were rarely mentioned in this presidential election. The national debt was rarely mentioned. The debt has got higher under Trump. The deficit has ballooned under Trump even before the impact of covid-19 what about trade there was a lot of trade rhetoric during the past four years episode 195 was has a trade war begun episode 212 trade wars increase prices and poverty with the tariffs on china and the trade war the trade deficit the goods trade deficit with china did fall over the past four years it was close to 375 billion in 2017 now it's down to 300 billion forty five percent of the overall u.s trade deficit with other nations China made up forty five percent of that trade deficit now China only makes up thirty six percent yet the overall u.s trade deficit has increased under the Trump administration all these tariffs and trade rhetoric the overall trade deficit as a percent of GDP went from 2 point five percent in 2016 to three percent prior to the pandemic aren't ellinghorst and Automotive analyst at Evercore ISI said, and I quoted him in that trade war episode The sad truth is that if you impose tariffs, production will move around. Companies adjust. There's tariffs in China, they'll import from other countries. One of the reasons for this trade war was to increase manufacturing jobs so that companies would have motivation to manufacture more in the US. In January 2017, there were 12.4 million manufacturing jobs. 8.5% of total non-farm jobs. By year in 2019, it had grown a half million to 12.9 million jobs, but had shrunk as a percent of overall jobs to 8.2%. And now with the recession, total manufacturing jobs are less than they were prior to when Trump entered office, 12.2 million manufacturing jobs. The Economist reports that these tariffs Particularly those targeted at steel cost American consumers $900,000 for every steel industry job saved. There are always unintended consequences when we start messing with tariffs, which are taxes that ultimately are paid by the consumers and businesses of the country imposing those taxes. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. One thing that did improve up until the pandemic hit were poverty statistics in the U.S. The Federal Reserve released their triennial Survey of Consumer Finances recently. This is a comprehensive survey that focuses on family income, net worth, debt, and other financial metrics. The survey showed from 2016 to 2019, median family income increased 5%, while the average family income fell 2%. So if the median or middle is increasing while the average is falling, that suggests income distributions are narrower, with lower income households gaining ground relative to higher income households. Families with lower net worth also gained relative to those with higher net worth, as median family net worth grew by 18% between 2016 and 2019, while the average only grew 2%. In their press release, the Federal Reserve wrote, Families at the top of the income and wealth distributions experienced very little, if any, growth in median and mean net worth between 2016 and 2019, after experiencing large gains between 2013 and 2016. Families near the bottom of the income and wealth distribution generally continue to experience substantial gains in median and mean net worth between 2016 and 2019. Now, that has changed significantly since the pandemic because, as we have discussed, the unemployment rate among lower incomes households is significantly higher than it is among higher income households. One area of the economy that the Trump administration did not make any headway on was health care insurance and health insurance reform. The president promised a plan, but never shared any details other than to say that insurers would not be able to exclude coverage due to pre-existing conditions. Health insurance premiums have continued to increase. The Kaiser Family Foundation shows that a single-person HMO plan offered through an employer costs $7,188 in 2019. That includes the employer and the employee contribution. That's up 3% per year from 2016. The cost of a family plan increased 4.6% per year during the time Trump has been in office to $20,576. Now, if we compare that employer sponsored plan to a plan available through the ACA, Obamacare, a typical family of four would pay premiums of $17,244, but their deductibles are higher. The average family four deductible is $7,700 compared to the average deductible for a Employer health coverage, which is about $1,600. I've recently been pricing out health insurance. We have been on a health share plan for three years. This is effectively a co-op. We've been with Liberty Health Share. We are leaving that. They just increased premiums about 30%. Client service has deteriorated, and they cap coverage at a $1 million per incident. I've been pricing out plans, and it looks like L'April and I will pay about $12,000 per year for a health insurance plan with a deductible of about six dollars to $7,000. So relative to employer plans, it's not as far off as I would have thought. The deductibles are much higher, but the premiums are about the same. One of the concerns often expressed is that under a Biden administration, The U.S. will be heading towards socialism. And when you look at health insurance in the U.S., 35% of individuals already have public health insurance. Medicaid's about 20%. Medicare's about 14% of the total. And military is about 1.4%. Half of the U.S. population has an employer-sponsored health care. And then 9.2% are uninsured. When we talk about socialism, there are many, many degrees. And just because a nation has public health insurance, including the vast majority of individuals over 65 in the U.S., have public health insurance through Medicare. Public health insurance does not equate to socialism, in my opinion. It's a social program, but not socialism. The Trump administration has been busy at work deregulating Under their administration, federal rules have grown about 0.5 percent, one twelfth the pace of growth during the Obama and Bush administrations, according to The Economist. And the Trump administration had 225 major executive actions, 70 of which were environmental rollbacks. Economist writes, these are rules that will increase the amount of lung-damaging fine particulate matter belched by coal-fired power plants, methane leaked by oil and gas wells, and carbon dioxide emitted from exhaust pipes of cars, with new less ambitious fuel economy standards. When the White House claims to have saved $51 billion, 0.25% of GDP, in regulatory cost, it ignores all such debits on the other side of the ledger in terms of the impact on people's health. A final area to look at, and the Trump administration points this out all the time, is the stock market. Over the past four years, the Vanguard Total World Stock Index has appreciated at 10% annualized. U.S. stocks have appreciated at 13.6% annualized. Now they've gotten more expensive. Earnings grew strongly during the first three years of the Trump administration, and they've essentially flatlined to decline since. Even before the pandemic hit, earnings were struggling. As a result, stocks have gotten more expensive. The U.S. stock's price-to-earnings ratio, the Schiller P.E. based on earnings over the past 10 years, has gone from 25 when Trump took office to 29.2 today. The P.E. for global stocks has gone from 17 to 21.2. So, in all in all, poverty has improved. Stock market has done well. The budget deficit has gotten way worse. The national debt has increased. Health insurance costs continue to rise faster than inflation. Trade wars didn't help the trade deficit at all and cost consumers money due to the tariffs. Regulations didn't grow as fast, and there was a lot of rollback in terms of environmental regulations. That's the Trump administration economic record. How much of that is due to Trump versus just how the economy adapts and evolves due to capitalism? Sometimes that's hard to determine. What has increased markedly over the past four years is divisiveness, anger, even hate. There is a greater lack of trust. There's a greater willingness to believe in conspiracy theories and to narrow down one's sources of news, to only listen to things that they agree with. Four years ago, in that election episode, I quoted from Anthony Rizzi in his book, The Science Before Science. He wrote, if we are unsuccessful in identifying trustworthy sources... We will either remain in a state of belief of erroneous things, or we will discover that our sources are erroneous and become cynical about our ability to learn from others. Willingness to learn. I said in that episode, cynicism, disbelief, and a failure to verify the trustworthiness of where we get our news is what allows conspiracy theories to thrive, fake news to proliferate, dictators to rise, and democracies to fall. Capitalism and democracy cannot function without trust in others and in institutions. The Economist reports that 73% of Americans say Republicans and Democrats cannot agree on basic facts. Basic facts. A survey by Lillian Mason and Nathan Calmo, two political scientists, found that 60% of American voters think members of the other party constitute a threat to America. More than 40% would call them evil, and 20% think they are animals. That is disheartening, terrifying. Why can't we have differences of opinions without branding the other side as evil and an existential threat? That, frankly, is my biggest concern as we go through this election and see the results and hopefully have a peaceful transition of power. The Pearl and I were hoping to vote by mail. Our ballots never came, so we ended up voting in person while we were in Arizona, and we'll see who wins. But whoever wins this election, don't let it ruin your life. You can continue to progress financially, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, irrespective of who's president. The president doesn't have that much control. What then should we do with whoever wins? Well, we'll see who wins and we'll spend time analyzing their economic policies and how they will impact money, investing in the economy and our level of worry about those things. That then is episode 320. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing to become a better investor, I have two ways that I can help you with that. First, you could subscribe to my free email newsletter. It's called The Insider's Guide. It's where I'll share the links and articles that I mentioned in the podcast episode, as well as an essay on money, investing in the economy, and other valuable content. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. The second way that you can become a better investor, get more serious about your investing, is to become a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. With Plus Membership, you get access to professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to help you stay on track, tune out the noise, and grow your wealth with confidence. With your growing net worth, isn't it time to invest like a professional with a focus on global multi-asset class portfolios, reasonable expected return and risk assumptions, achieving a real net of inflation growth, strategic adjustments as markets and economies evolve, and controlling fees and taxes? Money for the Rest of Us Plus is for those who choose to manage their own investments. It provides tools and training to manage an institutional quality investment portfolio. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.